Well, good morning, New Day. So good to see you guys. Just want to let you know the the rumors are not true. We did not close down first and third service. There are other service times. No, I just feel bad for you. It's so crowded in here. For those of you who are online, it is like hardly any seats at all. But we do have first. We do have third. If it's a little too crowded for your personal taste, just remember how we do have other services. But we are so glad that you're here. Uh, We are so glad to everyone who has tuned in online uh, that you've done so today. You've picked a great day uh, to be at church as we continue our current teaching series uh, called Christ the King, where we're studying the gospel according to Matthew. Our text today is Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21 where Matthew tells us that Jesus is a king like no other. Jesus is a king like no other. Matthew wrote his gospel. For those of you who are joining us for the first time today, welcome. Uh, What I want you to know is Matthew wrote his gospel uh, to proclaim to us that Jesus is the great king that God promised to send into the world. And if you're not familiar uh, with the Bible, uh, you may not know that all throughout the Old Testament, God made this very promise to one day send a savior into the world who would also be king over an eternal kingdom. There's many instances we could reference, but I'll share just two. Through the prophet Nathan, God told King David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God told David, I'm sending a king into the world who will descend from your lineage, and he will have a kingdom without end. Likewise, the prophet Daniel foretold the coming of one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So God told us that the Savior of the world would also be a great king who would rule over a kingdom, a kingdom comprised of all the people that he saved. And Matthew wrote his gospel to tell us that none other than Jesus of Nazareth is the great king. Matthew wrote his gospel to tell us that Jesus is the one who will receive dominion and receive glory in a kingdom that he will rule over forever. But here's the rub. All throughout Jesus' ministry, You know what he didn't act like at all? He didn't act like a king. I mean, Jesus just in no way, shape, or form at the time of his first coming acted like any king uh, any of the Jewish people had ever known or like any king any of us have ever known. Let me explain uh, what I mean. If you're taking notes today, the first thing I want you to see is this. Uh, Jesus declined a kingdom. I mean, what kind of king does that? Kings have kingdoms, right? But Jesus declined a kingdom. You may recall when the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and offered to give them to Jesus. You may recall Jesus declined the offer. He said, oh, a kingdom? Let me turn it down. What king does that? 
Number two, not only did Jesus decline a kingdom, secondly, uh, he also declined a crown. I mean, a king rules over people, and as he sits on his throne, he has a big gold crown on his head. But you may remember that after Jesus fed the 5,000 with the fishes and loaves, and the people tried to take him by force to make him king, we read in the Bible that Jesus fled to the mountains to escape being crowned. Again, what kind of king does that? What kind of king doesn't want a kingdom? What kind of king doesn't want to wear a crown? Number three, Jesus, unlike the other kings of his day, uh, he didn't exploit the people. You may recall how the nation of Israel came up out of their slavery in Egypt and God said, I am going to rule and reign over you. It was a theocracy where God ruled and reigned. He was in charge and the people looked around them and saw all the other nations and all the other nations had a human king over them. And they said, uh, we want to be like the other nations around us. And so God sent the prophet Samuel to tell the people, uh, a king is going to exploit you. Are you sure you want that? A king's going to draft your sons uh, to fight in his army, to plow his fields, and to forge his weapons. And he's going to draft your daughters and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He's going to take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves, and he's going to give them to his officials. And he's going to tax you, and your best servants and cattle and donkeys will all become his. As Solomon once put it, even the king milks the land for his own profit. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 9. And that tends to be the way of kings. But friends, did Jesus come exploiting the people? Did Jesus come telling the people, I want you to serve me? No, what do we read in Mark chapter 10, verse 45? It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What kind of king says, you don't serve me, I'm here to serve you. What kind of king does that? Finally, number four, uh, Jesus, he didn't fight to preserve his throne. So he declined a kingdom. He declined a crown. He didn't exploit the people. And lastly, uh, neither did he fight to preserve his throne. When the religious leaders of Israel, along with the Roman soldiers, uh, uh, came at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him. You may recall how the Apostle Peter pulled out a sword and tried to hack off the head of uh, Malchus, one of the assistants of the high priest. And Jesus said, put your sword back in its sheath. He said, Pete, don't you know that I could call legions of angels, thousands upon thousands of angels to come to my rescue? And if I called for that, they would come immediately. God would send them. But Jesus explains his actions as follows. He, he says, uh, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. And he said this to Pilate because Pilate was confused. What kind of king doesn't fight to defend his throne? And so Jesus explains, my kingdom is not of this world. John chapter 18, verse 36. So friends, understand Matthew is presenting Jesus in his gospel as the great king that God promised to send into the world. But Jesus is acting anything, anything but like a king. He's not acting like any king they had ever known. He turned down a crown. He turned down a kingdom. He served the people instead of expecting the people to serve him. And he refused to fight the one thing kings are probably most noted for. So as Matthew's readers are reading his gospel... 
They're asking themselves the same question we ask ourselves when we read the gospel of Matthew. What kind of king acts this way? And in our passage today, Matthew gives us a much-needed explanation uh, to that question. In our passage today, Matthew is going to explain Jesus' strange, non-kingly behavior. He's going to tell us why Jesus is like no other king we've ever known. Now, our text this week picks up where last week's text uh, left off, so a quick review is in order. Last week in verses 1 to 14, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for being so heartless, for lacking the compassion and love for their fellow man that God requires. And in response to Jesus' rebuke, the Pharisees formed a confederation, an alliance with the Herodians that they might plot together how they could kill Jesus. And that's where our text today picks up with Jesus becoming aware of that plot. We pick up reading in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, aware of the plot on his life, withdrew from there, from that particularly town in Galilee that he was ministering. And, and again, friends, this is the strange behavior that we're talking about. I mean, normally when kings in the Bible discover um, an assassination plot on their life, they catch those who plotted the assassination and they impale them on sharp poles. You may recall the book of Esther. When Mordecai reported to King Xerxes the assassination plot on his life, King Xerxes did just that. He impaled those who conspired against him on a sharp pole. That's how kings normally respond to assassination attempts on their life. But when Jesus discovers that the Pharisees and the Herodians are planning an assassination, he just quietly withdraws from the town. Now, while in the town that Jesus is now withdrawing from, Jesus healed a man who had a withered hand while he was ministering in the synagogue. So naturally, as he's withdrawing from the town, many followed him. And Jesus graciously healed them all. Now, that's pretty normal behavior for Jesus, but here's what's strange. Jesus, after healing them, does something we don't expect. We see in verse 16, Jesus ordered them. That is, those he healed and everyone in the crowd that had followed him out of the town and witnessed the miracles, Jesus ordered them not to make him known. Again, what king doesn't want to be known. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, there was King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, he was a little bit of an egotist, all right? He was a little bit of a narcissist because he erected a gold statue of himself that was 90 feet high and nine feet wide, and he put it on the plain, the part of the country where the most amount of people could see it so that everyone would know who he is. And then here's Jesus. Please don't make me known. Who does that? What kind of king acts in this way? So you see, Jesus just refused to conform to the normal kingly mold. And because 
His behavior deviated so greatly from the normal behavior the people expected from a king, Matthew feels the need to explain why. And that's what we see in our text today. An explanation for Jesus's strange, non-kingly behavior. Take a look with me at verse 17. Matthew says this, uh, this, meaning this strange behavior of Jesus, it's nothing to be concerned about. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He's saying, oh, I know it's strange behavior, but don't be alarmed. This was foretold by God's prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus is only acting exactly how the prophet Isaiah foretold he would behave when he came, even though he told it 700 years before Jesus would come. So don't be alarmed. And then it's as if Matthew says, look, I want you to see this for yourselves, that Messiah was supposed to act at the time of his first coming in this non-kingly manner. And it's as if he says, let me show you. And so what we see in Matthew's gospel is him quoting Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read that to you. Here God says, uh, look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. He will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout the earth. Even distant lands beyond the sea will wait for his instruction. Now understand... In Isaiah chapter 42, God is unveiling his plan to bring salvation to the world. In the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters were all about God's judgment on sinful humanity. But starting in chapter 40, all the way through chapter 66, God switches gear and moves from a focus on judgment to a focus on salvation. And in chapter 42, God lets the people know that his salvation will come through his servant, through his chosen one, who will establish a worldwide kingdom and government, one in which justice will reign. But God lets us know plainly that the ruler of this kingdom will not look like any king the Israelites had ever known. And that's why in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4, we see the repeated phrase, he will not. Verse 2, he will not. Verse 3, he will not. Verse 4, he will not. So what God's doing is he's kind of uh, taking the typical king uh, of, of the day and he's letting us know that his chosen ruler, his chosen king will be nothing like them. He's basically saying, you're going to expect that my savior king, when he comes, is going to behave in the typical kingly way that you would understand a king to act in. But I want you to know, he will not act that way. And now, having said that, big picture, God goes into the details. Letting us know four things specifically that God's chosen king won't be known for. Number one, if you're still taking notes, the first thing he won't be known for is force. Force. We see this in verse 19 where Matthew writes, He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Friends, isn't it true that those who lead nations 
are often forceful characters who get their way through quarreling and get their way by shouting commands in order to impose their will on everyone else regardless of other people's desires. Isn't that the case? But God let us know in advance 700 years before Jesus came that when he came, he would act in no such way. And this is why Jesus often withdrew when he came into conflict with those who opposed him. I mean, Jesus told his uh, apostles as well. Remember a few weeks back, we were talking about how the, the apostles went out to minister in the various villages and cities of Galilee. And when Jesus sent them out to minister, he said, look, if anyone won't receive uh, your words or your message, he says, just, just move on. Just move on. Go to the next town and begin ministering to someone who might be more open to what you have to say. But what he didn't say was, stay there and quarrel with them. If they disagree with you, begin shouting at them to try to force them into the kingdom. No. So Jesus instructed his disciples, don't quarrel with them. Don't fight with them. Share the message in love. And if they don't want to listen to what you have to say, just move on so you can begin ministering uh, to people who might be more open. And friends, this is what Jesus practiced himself because at the time of his first coming, Jesus' goal was to conquer by selfless, sacrificial love, not by force. So number one, God let us know 700 years before Jesus was born, when he comes as the king that I've promised to send into the world, he will not be known for his force. Number two, the second thing God's chosen ruler won't be marked by is fanfare. Fanfare. Number one, force. Number two, fanfare. Isaiah says not only will he not impose his will by force, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now, friends, nowadays when we have an announcement to make, we post it to social media. In Jesus' day, if you had an announcement to make, you would run through the streets. But God let us know, though my king is going to be in the world, he will not be shouting in the streets. I'm the chosen one. I'm the chosen one. As we've been learning, had Jesus come doing that very thing, he would have been met with a premature death. A death that would have came before he fulfilled the needed prophecies, before he was able to perform the miracles that Messiah was supposed to perform when he came, and he would have died before uh, his disciples were fully trained to be the leaders over the church that would be established once Jesus ascended back to heaven after the day of Pentecost. So far from running through the streets proclaiming who he was, I'm the chosen one, I'm the chosen one. Jesus often commanded both people and demons not to reveal his true identity. I mean, for example, when a demon revealed to everyone in a certain synagogue that Jesus was the Holy One of God, Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent. Mark chapter 1 verse 25. Later, other demons saw Jesus and cried out, you are the Son of God. And what we expect Jesus to do is say, say it again. Say it louder. I want everyone to hear but that's not what he does. They're proclaiming, you are the son of God. You are the king. You are the ruler. You are the chosen one. And Jesus strictly orders them uh, not to make him known. When Jesus healed the leper, Jesus told him, see that you say nothing to anyone. When Jesus opened the eyes of the two blind men, their healing came with a very stern warning. 
see that no one knows about this. We read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, that Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And again, Jesus was trying to prevent a premature death. He was willing to die when the time came, but he wanted to die according to God's timetable, uh, not the timetable of the religious leaders uh, or of the Romans. So until the time came when he was ready to die in the streets, uh, we do not see him uh, shouting to everyone, I'm the chosen one, I'm the chosen one. All right, moving on. The third thing God's chosen ruler, according to Isaiah, won't be marked by is forgetfulness. Number one, force. Number two, fanfare. Number three, forgetfulness. Isn't it true that many rulers care nothing for the weak and the suffering? For people whose lives are broken and worn out. Many leaders just forget about such people. But God lets us know through the prophet Isaiah that when his chosen ruler comes, he will not be like that. And we see this in verse 20, where Isaiah tells us, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, friends, the reed and the wick were two items that were super familiar uh, in Jesus' day and would have been super familiar to uh, Matthew's original audience, but they're two items that really aren't nearly as familiar to us who live some 2,000 years later. So let me explain about the reed and about the smoldering wick. In ancient times, reeds were used for many purposes. But once a reed was bent or bruised, it was useless, it was discarded, and it was never thought about again. Likewise, when a lamp burned down to the end of its wick, it would only smolder and smoke without giving off any light. And since such a smoldering wick was useless, it was put out and thrown away and forgotten about just like the broken reed. Therefore... The bruised reed and the smoldering wick represent people whose lives are broken and worn out, ready to be discarded and replaced by the world, but whose lives will never be forgotten about by God's chosen ruler. And friends, this is why Jesus all throughout his ministry helped and ministered to the downtrodden. Once when Jesus was preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, he opened the scroll of Isaiah and he uh, read this part to the people. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He cared about the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after Jesus read this to the people, he proclaimed that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy because he was the king who cared about the downtrodden, the broken and the worn out, the weak and the suffering, as well as the oppressed. So God told us his chosen ruler wouldn't forget the downtrodden, and Jesus surely didn't. 
So friends, God's chosen ruler won't be marked by force. He won't be marked by fanfare. He won't be marked by forgetfulness. Now, fourthly and finally, neither will, be, neither will he be marked by fatigue. We see this in verse 21 of Matthew's gospel. But Matthew here, knowing that his audience was super familiar with all the prophecies of Isaiah, simply summarizes the last part of Isaiah's prophecy. But you and I aren't nearly as familiar with the prophecies of Isaiah as they were, having grown up Jewish. So we are going to kind of go back to uh, the book of Isaiah to get what you could call the, uh, the director's cut or the extended version of the prophecy. Uh, so let's go back to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 4. We read, He, God's chosen ruler, will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So here's the deal. Though God gave Jesus a gargantuan task to provide salvation for the penalty for sin, which would come at great personal cost to Jesus, Jesus never lost heart. He never faltered. He was never discouraged to the point that it made him stop. When Jesus realized that God's appointed time had come for him to die for the sins of the world, take a look at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the time had come for him to be received up, received back up to heaven from whence he came, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Friends, what that means is he concluded his Galilean ministry and he set his face towards Jerusalem and began traveling towards Jerusalem in order that he might die as the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. A lesser leader, a selfish leader, a leader looking out more so for his own welfare than for the welfare of his people would have shrunk back at the task, but not Jesus. Isaiah foretold he will not grow faint. He will not be discouraged to the point of being stopped in his mission. And friends, that's exactly what we see with Jesus. He did not falter. He did not fatigue. Jesus stayed the course. And thank God for you and for I that he did. So you see, in Isaiah 42, God is comparing and contrasting his chosen ruler foretold by the prophet Isaiah with the typical self-serving king that the Jews were all too familiar with. And God says, my chosen king will not be like that. And this is something that Matthew just wants to remind his readers of, which includes us, not just his original readers, but it's something Matthew wants to remind you and I of today. No, Jesus wasn't like any other king. Yeah, he turned down a kingdom. Yeah, he turned down a crowd. Yeah, he served the people versus expecting the people to serve him. And yeah, he didn't allow his disciples to fight to uh, defend his throne. But none of this is strange behavior, Matthew is telling us. Rather, it's the exact behavior that God told us his chosen king would display some 700 years before he was even born into the world. 
So Matthew's saying, stop being surprised at Jesus' behavior. Stop being surprised that he doesn't act like most kings. Don't let that be a stumbling block to you coming uh, to him in faith to trust him for forgiveness of sins. Stop doubting that he is God's promised king just because he doesn't fit the stereotypical kingly mold. Now, friends, as we continue studying Matthew's gospel, we discover why Jesus took this seemingly strange approach when he came. And friends, it was simple. If you've tuned out, tune back in. This is so important. The reason that Jesus behaved in this way, the reason that Jesus took this unusual approach, it was so that his kingdom would one day be filled with people. People like you and me. Let me explain what I mean. Before Jesus can step into his destiny and rule over a kingdom without end, he first had to come to earth to take upon himself God's just punishment for sin, which, which is death. And if Jesus hadn't come to earth and taken God's punishment for sin upon himself on the cross, then none of us would ever be able to live forever with him in his kingdom. So Jesus would be a, a king, he would have a crown, he would have a kingdom without end, and there'd be no citizens living in the kingdom. So Jesus had to take a very unusual uh, approach for a king by first coming as the Savior who would save us from our sins so that he could provide for us a kingdom that one day we'll live in forever and one day he will rule over forever. But friends, at the time of his first coming, he didn't come to rule and to reign because he'd have no citizens to rule and reign over. At the time of his first coming, he came to suffer and die. Now, some of you are new to our church and maybe you're new to the Bible and maybe you don't know that in the Bible it actually speaks of, of Jesus coming, God's chosen ruler coming, not once, but twice. Two times where he would come down to earth and be on the earth and minister to his people. At the time of his first coming, he came as the suffering servant. At the time of his second coming, he comes as the conquering king. When he came the first time, he came to suffer and die. When he comes the second time, he comes to rule and to reign. So yes, it was a very unusual approach for a king to come and not rule and reign and not conquer, uh, you know, and, and lead his kingdom and not have a crown. But he did it so that he could come at his first coming to suffer and die for the sins of the world so that his kingdom one day could be populated with you and with me. The Bible tells us about the time of Jesus' second coming. The Bible tells us that at that time, right before Jesus returns bodily to earth, God's going to host a coronation ceremony up in heaven for Jesus. And he's going to receive a crown. And he's going to be given a kingdom. And the kingdom is his reward for all that he suffered at the time of his first coming. So on that day where Jesus is crowned king, the Bible tells us he's going to descend from heaven. And on his robe and on his thigh, he will have this name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. And how appropriate will that be since Jesus will have just been freshly minted king by God the Father. 
And again, that the kingdom, it's his reward for all he suffered at the time of his first coming. Now, when Jesus descends and lands on the earth, the Bible tells us that he's going to fight and defeat the Antichrist in the battle of Armageddon. And having dismantled the kingdom of Satan, Jesus will establish a kingdom of his own. But unlike any other kingdom that's ever happened in the history of the world, Jesus' kingdom will be established and his kingdom will have no end. God's word tells us that the kingdom begins here on earth for a thousand years, but after a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning, showing us all how life can be when he's in charge and giving everyone on earth one final opportunity to become citizens in his kingdom, the Bible says the present heavens and earth will be destroyed and his kingdom will be relocated to the new heavens and the new earth where we will live forever, where all who trusted Jesus by faith to forgive them of their sins will live forever under Jesus's righteous rule. Now, what I want you to understand today is this. All of history is marching with unstoppable momentum towards the time when Jesus will rule over his kingdom and demonstrate all the normal kingly type behavior that we expect from a king minus the corruption and exploitation. It's not if it's going to happen, it's when it happens. Because it's already been planned by God the Father before the foundations of the earth were laid. So friends, the question isn't will it happen, the question is will you be there when it does? Jesus wants you there. And because he is a king like no other, he has already done everything necessary for you and for I to be forgiven of our sins and gain entrance into the kingdom of his chosen ruler. But though Jesus has done everything that's needed to provide the entry fee into the kingdom, which was the price of his own blood, friends, it's not automatic that we enter. We have to ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins, but we also have to crown him king or Lord of our lives. You can't just say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. You have to ask him to be your sovereign, to be God's chosen ruler over your life. And friends, if he's never the ruler over your life here and now, he will never be your king in the kingdom. Jesus will never rule over anyone eternally that he does not rule over here and now. So we got to ask him to be Savior. Jesus, save me from the penalty for sin, which is death. Save me from that. But Jesus, I also want you to begin ruling and reigning now over my life. And then one day when we're in the kingdom and we're under Jesus' righteous rule, it won't feel a whole lot different than it is right now. But should we say, Jesus, be my savior? But, oh, I don't really want you to be king over my life. I don't want you to be the sovereign over my life who gets to call the shots. Well, then Jesus will never rule over your life eternally in the kingdom because you won't be there. And I wouldn't be there if that's the approach I took as well. He must be savior and he must be king. He must be Lord. If today's the day where you'd like to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, and today's the day where you're ready to appoint him king over your life, then I want to invite you to join us in our closing prayer. So wherever you're joining us from today, online, out in the foyer, here in person, uh, would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? Would you go 
with me to God in prayer. Saying this in your heart, say, Heavenly Father, I just thank you uh, so much for the promise of a king. Thank you for making good on your promise to send him into the world. And thank you that through his sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross, I can be forgiven and granted entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Today I'm trusting Jesus to spare me from your penalty for sin and to additionally provide me an eternal home in the kingdom. I don't deserve it, God, but I thank you that because of Jesus, this is an option for me. Because of Jesus' great love for me, displayed on the cross, today I willingly surrender to him as my sovereign, as my Lord, as my King. Oh, he hasn't been crowned King just yet. That'll happen at the time of his second coming. But I'm appointing him King over my life now. Today I invite Jesus to begin ruling and reigning over my life and to begin calling the shots according to Scripture from this day forward. Father, I wouldn't submit to any king like this, but I do it gladly with Jesus, because as I've learned today, Jesus is a king like no other. So receive me, I pray, as a citizen is in his kingdom, and I ask this in his name. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you and we hope to see you again real soon.